If you take out your Bibles, please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. And while I know we uh, were one week off from 1 Samuel when Danny was here preaching last week, but you may remember, or if you've been following along, wait a minute, I thought we did chapter 11 already. Well, there's two sneaky verses at the end that I think go better with the next section. So we still need to cover two sneaky little verses at the end of chapter 11, and then we'll dig into chapter 12 as well today. But while you're turning there, what is it about stories that intrigue us, that capture our attention and our thoughts? Whether books or movies or even directly from a person, we love a good story. Now, the best stories bring out and they alter our emotions in some way. They want us to follow along with them. So they aren't monotone. They aren't boring. They have variation. There's twists and there's turns. There's things that keep us interested in the progression of the story. And the vast majority of stories, at least good stories, they have character development. There's redemptive arcs that run throughout the story. And those are all things that we love about stories, things that make us come back for more. But I also think there's a deeper reason, a deeper thing that we might not often realize that we love about stories. We want a shared experience in our stories. We want a connection to our stories. So that might be relating to or desiring the traits of a certain character in a story. Perhaps it's some kind of fantasy world because you long for something more or something different from your actual life. We love to take our perception of reality, our lived experience, and to connect it to stories. Now, the text for this morning is a true story, which you relate to more than you probably will recognize at first. This passage, it has dramatic twists and turns. It has emotional highs and lows. It begins with revelry and joy, but it quickly takes an unexpected turn into shame and debilitating fear. But then there is rich and unexpected grace and mercy and assurance that lifts you up as a reader, and it gives you a deep sense of thankfulness. But then the close of the story doesn't stop there. It shifts to a note of stern warning, warning of danger. So really, it's a fascinating story that has one clear lesson that runs all the way through it. The Lord is always faithful to his people, despite their shortcomings and failures. And because God is faithful, you must also be faithful. So with that, let's begin in chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And Samuel said to all Israel, behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom I have pressed? 
Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought up brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead before plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord, and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away both you and your king.
to look at two points in the text this morning. The first is Samuel's indictment running from where we began through verse 18 of chapter 12. So we're picking up here in 1 Samuel immediately after the great victory over Nahash and the Ammonites. So now that Saul has been anointed, pronounced king, and proven himself in battle, it's almost time for him to officially begin his reign as king in Israel. But there still remains one last thing to do. Samuel's official role as the final judge over Israel is coming to a close, even as the reign of Saul begins. Now, Israel didn't need a judge and a king. Samuel's role was to usher in the monarchy, and the final step in completing his task is to renew the kingdom at Gilgal. Now, in one sense, Saul needed to be redeclared as king because he had taken so long to accept his role and actually prove himself for the office. But there's something far more significant taking place here than that. Notice that Saul was made king before Yahweh in the text. The people are clearly focused here on Saul. But Samuel had them gather at Gilgal in order to reestablish the covenant between Israel and the Lord. So when the people demanded a king a few chapters back, they rejected the Lord as king over them. But rather than giving them over to the world, the Lord was patient. He gave them a king and he continued to guide them. So now all of Israel needs to be realigned and reminded that the Lord is the true king, not Saul. Now it's also significant that they went to Gilgal to accomplish this. We see that Gilgal is listed three times in just two verses. Now, Gilgal means a circle of stone or an encampment. And when Israel first crossed over the Jordan under Joshua to conquer the promised land, they encamped at a place called Gilgal. And there they prepared themselves for battles to come. So now we see a picture, if you will, of the Lord reclaiming his people and setting them up for a second conquest of the land. You see, the victory, the conquest of Canaan, was never completed during the time of the judges. Because of sin and because of idolatry, Israel had actually not only failed to conquer the land, but they had even lost significant portions of territory. But now, in the re-established kingdom, Israel is going to get a fresh start to do what their fathers had failed to do. But success will not be dependent purely upon King Saul, but his Lord, the King Yahweh. But as you read through, I don't think the people understood the full impact of what was happening just yet. They clearly recognized God's kingship again, but there was something missing in in their behavior. They were mostly focused on Saul, on the new king. There was celebration, there was joy, there was feasting and sacrifice. This was a huge deal. They had received the king they had asked for, and they had seen a great victory over a very dangerous foe. They had been delivered. God appeared to be happy with them. And so they celebrated. They rejoiced in God's goodness to them. But as I mentioned, there was something missing in their reaction. They had overlooked something crucial in their relationship with the Lord in all of this. Samuel had not overlooked anything. And the longer this celebrating went on, the more glaring Israel's lack of repentance 
became. Notice that the people were happy to return to God and praise him after being rescued from their oppressors and after getting the king that they had asked for. But in one sense, their celebration was out of place because this isn't really how any normal relationship works. They had rejected God as their king. So imagine this. You have a huge fight with your spouse because of something you did wrong. You storm out of the house and you leave for a few hours. Then you come back home and all of a sudden you're in a good mood. You say, hey, get dressed up nice. Let's go out. Let's go on a date. We'll go someplace real nice for dinner. How well is that suggestion going to go over if you have not confessed of your sin and made up with your spouse first? My guess is that's not going to go over very well. You can't just forget about a big fight and pretend like it never happened. There has to be repentance or there can be no peace. Israel had rebelled against God by asking for a human king to replace him. But God, being patient and merciful, gave them a king and he gave them victory. But instead of that grace leading them to repentance... They forgot all about their sin and they tried to move on as if nothing had ever happened at all. But the prophet Samuel knew the situation and he knew the sin of the people. So at the height of their revelry and their joy in the wake of this great victory, God's lawyer brought charges, an official indictment against all of Israel. And Samuel began the indictment by actually putting himself on trial first. So he called God as a witness between him and the people that he had never done Israel any wrong in his leadership. He had been a faithful leader for Israel for many decades at this point. He had obeyed the Lord in everything he was commanded to do. And that included obeying the voice of the people and putting a king over them. Even his evil sons that Israel had complained about in chapters past had been dealt with in some way. That's why in chapter 12, verse 2, it says that his sons are with you, not over you. There was no failure or lack in Samuel's judgeship over Israel. And I want you to see the brilliance of this speech. He made the people affirm that they had not been wronged by him under his rule in any way. His tenure as judge was announced, confirmed, and declared innocent by the people of God. This was sealed then by Samuel saying, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And the people replied, and they said, He is witness. The crucial first step in his indictment against Israel is complete. Now, step two of Samuel's prosecution against Israel was to present a historical recap. Of the nation before we saw the faithfulness of Samuel presented. But as we move on into verses 6 through 11, we see that it was really the Lord who had been faithful through Samuel. The Lord was witness to the words of the people and of Samuel. He is the same God who raises up every leader to redeem his people when they need rescue. He raised up Moses and Aaron to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt and to officially make them into a nation in the first place. God did that, not a human king. And you have to wonder what the people were thinking as they are listening to this speech as it unfolds. Yes, Samuel, you were a good leader. Can we get back to the feast now, please? 
But I think by verse 7, every Israelite was beginning to understand that something more was going on here. This was not a warm and fuzzy retirement speech. This was not an old leader looking for vindication or for a pat on the back for his term. Samuel says, now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. I think it was at this moment that every Israelite knew that they were suddenly on trial before a holy God. This is legal language that Samuel uses here. Israel was suddenly in a courtroom on trial before God for their sin. And their fear had to have been growing because they did not know where things were going. They didn't know what the verdict would be or a judgment would follow that verdict. They were in the hot seat at this moment. And the prologue continued by showing the failures of the nation of Israel. God rescued Israel out of Egypt and made them into a nation through human leaders that he chose and raised up. He brought them into the promised land and gave them everything that they needed under his chosen leaders. But instead of completing the conquest of the land as as Israel had been commanded and prospering in that land, we're told that they forgot the Lord their God. They chose instead to worship idols like Baal and the Ashtaroth. Therefore, God gave them over to evil nations to drive them to repentance, to discipline them. And when Israel cried out for help, God graciously raised up judges to deliver them from their enemies. But then the people would at some point go back to their idolatry and then consequently be oppressed for their sin again. So Samuel lists multiple judges, including himself, to show that the Lord had continually raised up rescuers for Israel whenever they needed them. Israel mistakenly believed that the problem was that they did not have a king like all the nations around them. But as Samuel recounted Israel's history, one thing became very clear. The problem was never in the leaders or God's ability to save, but the people's sin and rebellion. There's no government on earth to this day that can fix the problem of sin and rebellion. And this is essentially what Samuel was saying to Israel. You rejected God as your king, just like all your rebellious fathers had done. God isn't the problem. Your government isn't the problem. You are. You have sinned against the Lord. You have damaged your covenant relationship with your God. And for this reason, there must be repentance if there is to be restoration. So to the people's shock and surprise, the renewal of the kingdom that Samuel mentioned was not about Saul as their king directly. It was about restoring the relationship between Israel and her true covenant king. And if that relationship remained broken, then no leader or government in the world could have helped Israel. Repentance, obedience, and faithfulness to the Lord, both from Israel and the king, were essential. And so the message is clear here. Saul and Israel must obey Yahweh as their king, or they will perish for their sin. There is no alternative, and Israel is undoubtedly guilty of this sin. Israel actually admitted so already. Remember that with the Lord as witness, they declared that Samuel was innocent as their leader. 
that times under Samuel were good. So what they did not realize at the time is that they were affirming that God's rule and reign over them was flawless. They had enjoyed security and peace under Samuel, and yet they still sought to reject God anyway. They said with God as their witness that Samuel's reign as judge was good in their eyes. So then why did they need to reject God's kingship? Why, when they themselves acknowledged that his rule over them was in fact good? Well, ironically, neither Samuel nor the Lord had to declare a guilty verdict on Israel because they found themselves guilty and swore it in the name of Yahweh. Imagine the shock, if you're an Israelite, of realizing that you have rightly judged and condemned yourself as a rebel against the king. Samuel, as prophet, acted as God's messenger to Israel in this prosecution. His words were powerfully delivered in a way that accused and convicted all Israel of rebellion. But even with how convicting God's indictment was, there may have been somebody there doubting. There were probably some Israelites who did not take his words seriously just yet. They said, oh, that's just grumpy old Samuel trying to make us feel bad. That's just the way he is. Grumpy guy. But God wasn't done speaking yet. Now, these events, they all took place sometime between the May to June wheat harvest, somewhere in that spring realm. And this is very much the dry season in Israel. It never rains and it never storms in the dry season in Israel. There are no pop-up thunderstorms in the dry season. So Samuel, he told Israel exactly what he was going to do. He will call on God to send heavy rain and thunder when there's no way it could possibly happen naturally. And sure enough, Samuel prays, and then in comes a terrifying storm. A storm like this damaged the wheat by knocking down some of the heads of grain. Wet grain would also sprout, and it would make the yield very poor for the year. So this wasn't just a sign. This was actually a form of discipline, of judgment. So Israel here understood that the Creator God had just disrupted the natural order of things to send them a powerful message. This confirming sign of judgment accomplishes four things. First, it punished Israel by reducing their wheat harvest. Second, clouds in Scripture, they are connected to deity. So God sending a message on the wings of a storm is a very powerful message for an Israelite. Third, this was also a statement against idolatry. Baal was supposed to be the great storm god, the god of fertility, the god of rain and clouds. But God uses things commonly associated with this false god to show who the real God is over creation. And fourth, this confirmed that Israel was dead wrong in asking for a king in the way that they did. But for once, we see that the people actually reacted correctly to this sign. They were terrified of the Lord and of Samuel, his prophet. So the revelry of the celebration that began this passage over a new king has been flipped on its head. And this further highlights the severity of Israel's sin. That high to low shows the true depth of this sin. They thought that they could just continue on as normal and that God would stay happy with them. But they had sinned. They had rejected God not long before this. 
Sin and disobedience, they bring judgment and they bring death. And that thunder was a sign of the judgment. Something has to be done in order to restore that relationship that had been lost. That leads us into the second point. Repentance and assurance. This is verses 19 through the end of chapter 12. So confronted with the weight and foolishness of their sin, Israel was rightly terrified. They were in a serious situation that could lead to judgment. But notice that they didn't just sit in their fear and do nothing. They didn't give up. Their fear led them to repentance, which makes it a godly fear that they had. They knew that they had sinned against the Lord and Samuel. They knew that they couldn't argue that point, especially since they had declared the verdict themselves. Because of their sin, they knew that they could not approach a holy God. And so they actually did exactly what they should have done. They went to someone who could intercede for them before the Lord. And they confessed their sin without hiding any of it. They said, we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. So the indictment, it didn't just make them realize they had sinned in rejecting God, but that they were already incredibly sinful even without that sin. They had nothing left to offer. The only option left was to confess and to plead for mercy. And as they did so, they braced for an answer or for the answer that they would receive. Now, often in Scripture, clouds and thunders signify the judgment of God on the wicked. So would this be their turn to be destroyed as the Ammonites had just been judged? Or would they receive mercy from God? Well, it does not appear that Samuel left them for long before he answered their plea and their confession. So sitting under the weight of their guilt and awaiting a deserved judgment, Samuel said, do not fear. Yes, they had sinned grievously, but there was a solution. Despite the evil that they committed, there was still grace offered to God's people. The one who was rejected and snubbed by his own people still offered forgiveness and hope to Israel. And yet there was one requirement for God's people to receive this forgiveness. But it's not what you might expect. Israel wasn't given a checklist to complete. They weren't told to do enough good to earn their position and their standing back. Samuel said, do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And this one requirement is so important that it's stated twice, once negatively and once positively. But the underlying message is the same in both. The way to find forgiveness and grace is to love the Lord with your entire being. The solution to the problem of sin is not to run away. It's not to try to clean yourself up. Forgiveness comes through repentance and faith. The removal of condemnation comes through returning to and loving the very same God that you rejected and sinned against. God doesn't want eloquent words or misguided attempts at self-justification. He wants your very heart. Israel in the past had worshipped Baals and Ashtaroth. But the more recent idol was not one of the gods of the land, but the idolizing of a human king. 
And given Israel's experience of watching God deliver them again and again, it was a pretty foolish thing to try to idolize. Baal, gods of Egypt, any other human kings, they were all worthless. Those things have no true power. And so in the Hebrew, Samuel calls them tohu, empty. Tohu is the same word used in Genesis 1-2, combining with another word to describe what it was like before creation. And there it combines with another word to say tohu vavohu. And we translate that as without form and void. Now, tohu can mean wilderness, as in there's absolutely nothing there. It can mean emptiness, and it can mean absolute nothingness. So going to an idol or a king and hoping it can solve all your problems is ultimately useless because they have no power. The mightiest king in the world without the power of God behind him is as useless, empty, and worthless as absolute non-existence. They cannot save because they have no real power. God, on the other hand, is the only one with the power and the ability to save. And here is the assurance of forgiveness and salvation for Israel after their repentance. The text says, For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. The great God cannot forsake his people. For the glory and for the praise of his holy name, he has declared that he will redeem his people despite their sin and rejection. Yahweh will glorify himself by saving Israel despite their failures and sin. It pleases our God to save broken and sinful wretches and to make them his. And all of that must come through the work of a mediator. Israel needed continual intercession between them and God. And the promise is that they will continue to have someone to intercede for them before God. Just as God will continue to be their covenant God, so Samuel would continue to perform his role as a mediator for the rest of his days. As long as he lived, he would intercede for Israel and show them the way of the Lord. Through faith and repentance, we see a wonderful promise of forgiveness and life to Israel. But we also need to recognize that this passage closes with a warning. It doesn't stop on that assurance and hope. Israel must continue to walk by faith. They will continue under the rule of kings, under the rule of kings that God will raise up for them. But if they continue rejecting God and walking away, then God is going to bring the nation to an end and judge them. So Samuel ends this speech in a way that was meant to really heighten the emotional intensity of Israel. Because you see, all along, Israel had assumed that the biggest threat they faced was external enemies. The Philistines, the Amorites, the Ammonites, all the other nations. Those were the real problems for Israel. Or so they thought. But Samuel's final words drove home to every Israelite listening that they were horribly wrong. The biggest threat to them as individuals and as a nation, it was not an external one, but it was an internal one. The single biggest threat to Israel was their own sin and rebellion. 
In the words of Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The most dangerous enemy of God's people is not the world. It's not bad leaders or even Satan. The biggest danger for an Israelite was their own sinful heart. And they needed to have learned that. So how do we apply all this? Well, I hope it does not surprise you too much to learn that the application for this passage is essentially the same as it was for the Israelites. We are not better than the Israelites. We are not less prone to rejecting God in favor of idols. Now, your idols may look different, but they may not. How often do we place our security and our hope in human leaders? Getting the right person in office, that'll fix it all. How often do we consider our own comfort and health above everything else? And in doing so, we are rejecting God. We're saying, I don't need you to be happy and I don't need you to be safe. I can do it on my own. But if you examine your heart honestly, then you will find two things. First, there is something, something in your heart that you are placing your hope and trust in other than the Lord. There is something that you think will protect you, that you think will bring you joy, that will somehow make you content and happy, and that will solve all your problems. Or so the promise goes. But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. It's a false hope banking on something that is empty nothingness. It's a promise built on complete lack of power and ability. In other words, my friends, your hearts are liars. And second, you will find that God has always been nothing but good and faithful to you and to his church. You can search through your whole life and the history of the church. You can search over all of history. And you will never find a single instance, not one, where God has failed his people, where God has failed you. There was never a moment God did not do exactly as he has promised. And even if you have had a horribly difficult life, if you have Christ, you have grace upon grace. God has been faithful to you, and I know that fact for certain. Faith and repentance are the only solution to our problem of sin and idolatry. And repentance and faith are only possible because we have a perfect prophet, priest, and king in Jesus Christ. Saul was not a perfect king, nor were any who followed after him. That monarchy eventually became so wicked that God brought in the Babylonians to destroy the temple and carry the people into exile. Now Samuel, he was a faithful priest, but one day he died, and he could no longer intercede for Israel. Saul and Samuel, they were just pictures of the reality to come in Jesus And our Lord now sits at the Father's right hand, interceding for you always so that you won't die on account of your sin. Samuel promised to teach the people the good and the right way. Meanwhile, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. So the message of this passage has not changed since the day that these words were uttered. The guilt and the shame that sin brings is death and judgment, is death and judgment to all mankind. No one can escape on their own, and it is only by God's grace that any man 
can be saved. And it's not through our own efforts, it's not through our abilities or gifts that any man is saved. That grace has come only in the person of Jesus Christ, just as the Lord has promised, because he is faithful to what he has promised. That message that Samuel proclaimed to all those Israelites some 3,000 years ago, we still proclaim today in the gospel. Grace and salvation have come in Christ. So follow him with your whole heart and work out your salvation with fear and with trembling. And always rejoice in the fact that it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Let's pray. Lord God, we can only rejoice and give you praise for the mystery of the gospel, that you would send Christ for us, that you would intercede on our behalf, us who are sinful, idolatrous, and just fallen in every way. We who even as mature believers so often struggle with idolatry, placing our hope in this or that, thinking is going to somehow rescue us, all the while forgetting to just place all of our trust, the whole of our heart in Christ. Lord, help us to be faithful, for we know you are faithful. Help us to see you as the great model so that we can go and walk in the way that you have shown us. Jesus, we thank you that you have shown us the way, that you are the truth, the way, and the life. Lord, help us to walk according to that light and help us to seek to give you glory as we do so. We give you praise this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.